thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Uh, good evening and welcome to the study on uh, the temple. It is, it is important for us to realize that God spent about two chapters in the Bible speaking of creation and about 50 speaking about the tabernacle and the temple. 50 chapters where God is giving direct instructions very detailed instructions on how he wanted the tabernacle first and then the temple to be built. And we're going to try and understand why. Why did he spend so much time uh, over the, these, these structures? And what does it mean to us today? Now, as far as the book of Revelation is concerned, what will happen, hopefully, at the end of these four lectures is that you will begin to see the events that are occurring in the book of Revelation in a liturgical setting. So the types of animals we're going to encounter, the types of events that will take place, for instance, an angel taking a censer, filling it with coals, throwing it on the earth, uh, the type of... Uh, of uh, imagery used, you have seven angels coming out of the, the, the holy holding the cup of wrath. All, those Im all this imagery is not fanciful, it is rooted in the liturgy of the temple. It takes its origins there, it takes its, the source of its meaning there. And hopefully, one of the most important transformation in our approach to the book of Revelation will take place after we spend these four lectures, namely that we will shift away from a view that is very sensationalist. We're trying to decipher in the book of Revelation events that are dramatic or secrets that we think are there to a view that is liturgical. And as a result, our understanding of the liturgy and the impact the liturgy has on the world will be sharpened, and then we will start to be true participants in the liturgy. We will start to pray the way we're supposed to pray in the liturgy. That's really one of the most important aspect of the book of Revelation as far as we're concerned. Getting us to understand the importance, the power of the liturgy of the church, 
of mass. That's one of its most important, most enduring effect. The greatest gift, perhaps, for our lifetime is this aspect of the book. The liturgical aspect. And hopefully, you will come to realize that the liturgy is truly operational. Meaning that it's the liturgy that moves the world. Everything that happens in the world happens through the liturgy. That's the power in the liturgy. The power is there. It needs to be exercised. And the only way it can be exercised is if we exercise it. That's how it works. That's how it works. St. Augustine, the God that created you without you will not save you without you. The God that created you without you will not save you without you. What is it implied? What's implied is that you better be praying to be saved. Where's the best place to pray? Doing Mass. Right? It is a teaching of St. Thomas, and it might be even a solemn teaching of the Church, although I'm not sure of that last part, but I'm sure that St. Thomas teaches this, that God will not, and I repeat, will not, does not usually, give us the gift of final perseverance. You know what final perseverance means? Persevering in our faith till the end, till we die. That's a gift. It's called the gift of final perseverance. God will not give us this gift unless we ask for it. Unless we consistently ask for it. Now, it doesn't mean that we have to ask for it explicitly. Because many Catholics are not aware of it. But you ask for it implicitly when you do what? When you're participating in the liturgy. When you truly participate in the liturgy, when you love the liturgy, when you love the Mass, you're basically saying to God, that's great stuff, I want more of this. And you're not going to get more of this unless you persevere, so he's going to give it to you. And likewise, God is not going to heal your family, heal your loved ones, convert those who separate themselves from the church, touch the world, heal it, convert it, renew it, unless we ask for it. And let me repeat what I mean by we. I mean Catholics. Specifically Catholics. That's the responsibility we have before God because of the gifts He gave us. No one in this world can pray with the power that Catholics possess. The greatest saint of the Old Testament the greatest saint of the Old Testament cannot pray with the power that the least Catholic possess. How many of you are convinced of this? Down to the very core of your heart. That's the power you have. That's the power that needs to be exercised. That's the greatest gift of the book of Revelation. The more you meditate on it, the more you see what's going on, the more you understand the liturgy, the more you realize that that's the word of God to us. That's what he's telling us. This is our foremost duty. Being able to celebrate the liturgy the way he wants it celebrated so that we may, in our participation, in our offering of ourselves, ask and we will be given. Knock and it shall be open. That's what... We, are, we ought to do. 
And in order to understand that, we can go and look at the temple, because the temple was a physical reality. It was not very complicated to understand compared to the book of Revelation. And we can see how the prototype, meaning the temple, worked so that we can better understand how the reality, meaning the heavenly liturgy that happens here every Sunday, works. That's why it's important to study the temple and its liturgy. Now, the first thing I'd like to point out is the structure of the temple. And likewise of the tabernacle. They were structured pretty much the same way. The tabernacle, if you recall, is this portable um, temple that the Israelites built while they were wandering in the desert. Moses went up the mountain and, and spent six days neither eating or drinking, waiting for God. And on the seventh, God called him to the top of the mountain and there he revealed to him that he wanted him to build a tabernacle. And then, and then for, uh, for several chapters, God went into great details on how the tabernacle ought to be built, what kind of material must be used, and what the dimensions were, and how it was going to be represented, and how it was going to be structured, and how they ought to behave around it, and how they need to be structured around it. All that is given in great details. Why? Because it's an image, it's a type of... Christ. It is made, it is built in such a way that through the liturgy of the temple, through the sacrificial offerings, through the bread, through the oil, through the incense, through the different sacrifices, through the animals being sacrificed, they could learn to recognize the Messiah. That was the purpose. And we're going to try and, 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 and capture a glimpse of this uh, tonight. So, the, the, fundamentally, the structure is rectangular. Right? The last time I've said it, and it's worth repeating, the outer court of the temple was called by the Jews the mountain of the Lord, or, alternatively, the court of the Gentile. This was an area that was open to non-Jews. They could go into that court and worship God there they were not allowed to move any closer. That was not, if you will, the, temper, the temple proper. It was an area surrounding the temple. In case of the tabernacle, the tabernacle in the desert had essentially, didn't have that court of the Gentile, it had only and immediately the court of the priests. Why? Because the tabernacle in the desert was specifically designed for the need of Israel. The temple was serving a bigger purpose. It was there to indicate the universal nature of the house of God. That's why you had the court of the Gentiles. Whereas in the tabernacle, you only had immediately the court of the priest. Now, inside the court of the priest, you have the main structure called the holy. The holy. And inside the holy, about... Two-thirds into it, you had this very special area called the Holy of Holies. Outside of the Holy, that is in the court of the priest, you had, in the case of the tabernacle, the bronze or, or the brazen altar. It was the altar of sacrifice. 
and next to it stood the lever, the two-level lever for the in, in case of the of the tabernacle. And I'll explain briefly what the, the purpose of these two things were. Then behind a curtain, if you were to enter the, that space behind a curtain, you would see on to your left the table of showbread. This is where uh, unleavened bread was placed. And towards the middle, closer to the Holy of Holies, you had the altar of incense. And to the left, you had the, the great candelabrum consisting of seven branches with flasks of oil that burned continuously. That's what you had in a tabernacle. In a temple in Jerusalem, you had the same thing. In the court of the priest, you had the great altar of sacrifice. The dimensions changed a little bit. In the case of the tabernacle, the, the, altar, the brazen altar was a box. Um, I'd say, um, I don't have right now the dimensions with me, but I would say about uh, maybe six feet long by about four feet wide. And maybe about four, four and a half to five feet high. I'll get you the right dimensions. It was, it was designed to be portable. In a temple, the altar of sacrifice was 15 feet high, made of one stone, 48 feet by 48 feet. And there was a platform, so there was one platform, 48 feet by 48 feet, and then another one about 30 feet by 30 feet, which was the actual altar. And round about it, there was a platform where the priest officiated to perform the sacrifice. And on that altar, there were three fires that continuously burned. That was the great altar of sacrifice that stood outside of the holy. Now, the holy was a building. In a, in a, in a tabernacle, the holy was a tent. When the temple was built, the holy was a building. Seven story high seven story high, covered inside and out with gold. And the plates of gold were about this, the thickness of a 25 of a quarter. And when you entered into the holy, towards the back of it, you had the holy of holies. And there was a separation, a curtain. That curtain was... Um, 60 feet wide by 30 feet high. That's the famous curtain that went from top to bottom. Most people have in their, in their imagination a, you know, curtain against the window. Small thing that kind of, no. It took about 300 priests to put it in place. That's the curtain that separated the holy from the holy of holies. Now, in the time of in the temple of Solomon, the temple that Solomon built, what did you have in the Holy of Holies? You had the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, and I'll describe it a little bit more, contained in it three things. A pot of manna, the rod of Aaron that had budded, and the commandments, the Ten Commandments. 
And over it, on the cover, the cover was called the mercy seat, and on top of it were two cherubims with their wings, their heads between their wings, facing each other, and their wings touching each other. Okay. Remember that whenever you have a conversation, friendly conversation, with your Protestant friends, and when they point out to you, why do you have statues in, your, in, the, in the church? Because they will say, they will quote scripture and say that God commanded us not to build any statue. Point them, point, point them out to that description of the holiest, the most, the holiest object in all of Israel having two statues of cherubim on top of it. And help them understand that when God forbade Israel from building statues, what he had in mind are the statues of Egypt. Those statues that would take people away from the faith. Not statues and images that would bring people into the faith, because we are made out of flesh. We have a body, we adore with our body, with our eyes, with our ears. And that's why it's important for them to understand that. This is an aside. Now, when God consecrated the tabernacle, and when God consecrated the temple, in one case Moses was the human agent, and the other Solomon was the human agent, the Shekinah, Al-Sakinah, the presence, the Holy Spirit, came down and filled the tabernacle. It basically came on the mercy seat and it filled the, the tabernacle so much so that not even Moses, who was friend with God, he could not even stay there. He had to get out. And likewise, when the temple in Jerusalem was consecrated, the Shekinah, the visible presence of God, came down from heaven and it lit the fire on the altar of sacrifice, the perpetual fire, and it settled as a presence into, inside the Holy of Holies. And it stayed there until right before the destruction of Jerusalem. If you remember Ezekiel, I told you about his vision, and he saw the Shekinah, the presence of God, leaving the temple. So it wasn't just a building made out of stone. It wasn't just a portable temple in the desert. That structure, the physical structure, had a soul, had a divine soul, the Holy Spirit. Typifying what? Typifying the perpetual indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the Bride of Christ, the Church. But whereas in the case of the Temple, that presence was temporary, in the case of the Church, it will never go away. Never. Why? Because... Christ entered into a covenant with us, and a covenant cannot be broken. This is a perfect covenant, and it cannot be broken. It has been sealed by the blood of Christ, which no power on earth can break. So, that's the structure of the tabernacle, that's the structure of the temple. When you entered the temple, just as when you entered the holy, in both cases the holy, you had... This, the altar of incense, made out of acacia wood in the desert, covered with gold. And it was on this, on this altar that you burned incense. 
To the left of it, you had the great candelabrum that I spoke to you about last time. It weighed about 90 pounds when it was in the desert, about 100 when it was in the temple, made of pure gold, with seven branches, and the end of the branch were flasks of oil made in the form of almond blossom. Now I want you to stop for a second and think about that. God commanded Moses to make them in the shape of almond blossom. Why would God worry about almond blossoms? I'll tell you in a minute, but I just want you to think about the minutest details to which the Lord went in directing them how to build the tabernacle and how to build the temple. We'll come back to that in a, in a moment. Just think about that for a second. Now, in the temple, priests could offer sacrifice. Animal sacrifice was done where? Let me see if you're following me. On the altar of sacrifice, which is outside of the holy. Okay? Under which circumstance would a priest bring blood inside the holy? Under one case only. One. The liturgy of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The only time where blood was brought into the holy. The only time. And next, next week, we are going to spend the whole hour going through the liturgy of atonement and then, if time permits, spend time understanding the cedar meal, which is what, what Christ celebrated on that fateful Passover day when he celebrated the Passover with his uh, disciples. That was the only case. Other than that, no blood or animal parts would enter the holy. Now here's an interesting observation that many, many, actually most scholars who study the book of Revelation will make right away. And that is, John in the Greek uses the word neos to, rep to, to speak of the temple. And really neos, when he speaks of the temple in heaven, he speaks of the neos. And the neos is the holy. Only. So the court of the priest, the altar of sacrifice, all that is God. What remains is the neos, the temple proper. If you, for, if you do a fast forward to today and you think about the church, what you have is the neos. That's what we have today. Right? We are standing in the holy. That's where we are. We're now admitted into the holy. Behind me, where the sanctuary is, you have the holy of holy. The altar is the altar of incense. The, 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 the great candlestick is now represented by um, the place where the gospel is read and where the homily is given and by the seat of the bishop as well as in the Latin rite by the paschal um, candle which is put on that side of the altar for these reasons. All right? You need to see the continuation. Why is that important? It's not, for, uh, it's not for us to reminisce on the past or to, you know, think, wow, that's cool. It's to understand that if God gave very explicit directions on how he wanted the temple built, he also had very explicit directions in mind about how we're supposed to build our churches. 
And last time I spoke to you about the sacredness in the place we're in and how this kind of architecture we're in it and that of many other churches dulls our sense of the sacred. Our sense of the sacred is extremely dull. Even among devout Catholics, the sense of the sacred is extremely dull. That is not necessarily something that you consult people with. It is due to the fact that most of us are worshipping in churches that do not follow the prescribed design. They are not built the way God wanted them to be built and therefore do not appeal to our senses. Don't lift us up. When you enter into this church, or in many other churches, you compare them to what? You compare them to a stadium, you compare them to a theater, you compare them to places where you go and you sit down and you enjoy a nice um, show. That has become our point of reference, not the temple. So, in one way, because of our own ignorance, we've allowed the word, the world to convert us instead of us converting the world. We've allowed the world to enter into our architecture and deform it. So we have, we have a responsibility towards God and towards His church to start praying for a better understanding of these things and also fervently ask the Lord for the renewal of the liturgy. We need the liturgy to be renewed in such a way that it infuses life back in us. Now, those same elements I've described to you, we will find them again in the book of Revelation. There is an altar in the book of Revelation. There is incense. There are um, ministering priests which are who are angels ministering at the altar of the Lord. And as the liturgy in heaven unfolds, event on earth takes place. Take place. And you will see that those events that take place on earth are always driven by what happens in heaven. God has the first word. God has the last word. A couple more uh, interesting observations about the temple to help you understand it a little bit more. In the court of the Gentile, there were signs on the pillars in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew warning Gentiles not to go any further, not to enter the court of the priest under penalty of death. This is how seriously they took the word of God. Furthermore, the temple had four main doors oriented to, facing towards the west. The most important of them was the southernmost door. That door, the Golden Gate, no, uh, San Francisco did not uh, invent that uh, expression, sorry to say, um, was accessed through a bridge. Let me give you a little bit of an indication of the magnitude of what you're dealing with there. The, 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 bridge, the bridge was built with arches. The arches were about 42 and a half feet wide, each arch. The spring rocks, the ones at the base of the bridge, were 6 feet wide, 24 feet long, each rock. The temple was built with rocks 
some of which were 40 feet by 40 feet. One rock. I want you to imagine the size of this thing, the sheer size of the temple. It was arresting. It was built to attract your attention. It did. It did. That's why the disciples put another temple for Jesus saying, isn't that beautiful? And when he said, there will not be left a stone upon a stone, you could imagine their surprise. Those stones were huge. Who could possibly move them? And his words were literal. That's what happened literally in 70 AD. In the temple, there was one gate through which they brought the animals for sacrifice. So they would go out of that gate. Guards and priests would go out of that gate, cross the valley, buy the animals, bind them, and bring them to the high priest. It was the exact same route they took that evening, guards and priests, to go out through that same door in the night and find the Lamb of God and bind him and bring him to the priest. That was not accidental. It was built. God built that this way so that when it would happen, they would remember the word of Isaiah in chapter 53 and see it before their own eyes and come to believe that this is the Lamb of God. Everything was made to teach them about His love. Inside the court of the woman, which is between the court of the priest and the court of men and the court of the Gentile, you had the court of the woman. Inside that court, you had 13 flutes Trumpets, sorry. Thirteen trumpets, that's what they called them, for the treasury. They were essentially large containers with a very narrow neck and a wider body, hence the word trumpet. And that's where people came and placed their tithe or put their money. And it was in that court that Jesus saw this one poor widow who came and gave everything she had. And that's why, in fact, he said about those who walk around the city trumpeting, with a trumpet going before them saying, look how much I give. It was a play on the word, because those things were also called trumpets. No, no woman did not go into the holy, which is incidentally one reason why um, there was such an uproar when uh, uh, girls were allowed to uh, be um, altar girls. Uh, because you need, to, you need to understand that everything was done, everything is done to typify, to represent, to recall Christ. Everything is about Him. So the holy was reserved to not men, but priests. So men, Israelites, who would dare enter the holy, and who are not of the tribe of Levi, and who are not priests. Incidentally, not every Levite could be a priest. He had to prove that he was a Levite for seven generations, and he had to be without blemish. He was stripped naked and examined by the priest. If, he, if any blemish was found on him, he could not be a priest. That was it. Alright? So only priests could enter, to offer, and only to offer, offer sacrifice. So priests could not just go in the holy, I'm just going to go sit down and pray. You don't do that. And you, go, you don't go chatting in there. If, if, they, if you found chatting about whatever in the holy, you could be put to death. Incidentally, 
when the liturgy started, especially that of Yom Kippur, but any other liturgy, there were two choirs singing. Not one, two. One of priests, 500. And one of Levites, 500. That's where we get the expression high mass from. Pontifical mass, because the high priest pontificated. He was a pontiff. He had a tiara exactly as the Holy Father would have a tiara. That's actually, you know the tiara, what I'm talking about, right? Uh, either the tiara or the um, mitre, right? Why do you think the mitre is split in half? You know, when, when the Holy Father is wearing this kind of strange hat, it's kind of tall and split in half. Why is it split in half? Horns, yes, exactly. Exactly, the horns. A horn is always a representation of power. That's what a horn is. So, um, Moses, for instance, is said to have had two horns that sprouted, representing his power. But more importantly, the ox has two horns. And the ox was offered as a complete burnt offering, representing Christ, who alone could withstand the passion. And therefore, what that might represent is really the power of Christ. That's what it represents. The, the, the high priest in the temple had it. We didn't invent it. Okay? The vestment of the Holy Father is pretty much the vestment of the high priest in the temple. With a couple of minor variations. The vestment of the priest comes from the temple. All right? Many of those elements that you see in our church come straight from the temple. Now, there is one thing I want to talk to you about before I look at the bread and the oil and the... And um, the incense, and that is the way the tribes of Israel were structured around the tabernacle. The order of the tribes, I'm just going to wait for you guys to get this and then I'll, I'll talk to you about it, is also important. The way they were structured around first the tabernacle, it was not left to chance. God told them exactly how they were supposed to be, how they're supposed to encamp around the tabernacle. And then likewise, the, the temple that Ezekiel saw had 12 gates, and each gate had the name of one of the tribes. The temple in heaven has 12 gates, and each gate has the name of one of the tribes. And you will see minor but important variations in those names and in the way they were ordered. Okay? So I just want to show that to you so that you could understand how how uh, this plays. We will be spending a little bit more time on that during our study of the book of Revelation, but I just want to cover this right now. Uh, you need to become familiar with the family of Jacob. A greater familiarity with the names and who they are and their position help you, will help you understand um, certain key details about the temple and then also in the book of Revelation. Um, let me start talking to you about the, um, some of the key elements. So I told you, for instance, about the candelabrum last time. We, sp we spent quite a bit of time talking about it. I'll just evoke one more time the almond uh, blossom. Now, the, the oil lamp was shaped in the fo form of an almond blossom. Now, you need to remember that the rod of Aaron, when it blossomed, it actually blossomed almond blossoms. And it even had almonds on it. Okay? 
what is interesting is that you see the correspondence or the link between the natural temple, which is this cosmos, this whole universe, and the temple. Meaning that everything in nature was also created to speak to us about Christ. Everything. The ant, the spider, the cockroach. You would wonder, how could a cockroach speak to me about Christ? Well, here's one characteristic of a cockroach which you may not know about. Cockroach, by the way, are really amazing creatures. Um, a cockroach can spend 40 days without food and 7 without water, which reminds you of Christ fasting. A cockroach, the, 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 when, it, when it drops a... Um, it's not an egg, but it's something corresponding to an egg. That thing is impervious to any um, pesticide you can throw at it, at it. Reminiscent of the Christian who, in the state of grace, is, is, is impervious to any sin. You see, if you, if you just spend the time looking at everything in, in nature, and I mean everything, you will see the face of Christ. Without exception. So, God created this universe as an echo of his son. This universe has only one word to say, which is Jesus Christ. That's what it's saying to us continuously. We may not hear it, because we're not paying attention, but that's what it's saying. Okay? Um, and there is a link between <coughs> nature as a <coughs> natural temple and the temple or the church. And we see it here with this uh, almond blossom. Now, what, what do we know about uh, almond? The almond is the first tree to flower. It flowers in January and February. Even when there is snow, the almond will flower. And so what does it re remind us of? The resurrection. Who is the first one to be born of the dead? Jesus Christ. Here's the almond that among all trees is the first to blossom and to produce a flower. Okay? Almond in Hebrew, shaked, means the awakening one, or literally to be wakeful. Now what do we put on those almond flasks? Oil. And we light it. And that's representing what? The presence of what? The Holy Spirit. Right? And how are we to be awake? Hmm? What did Christ tell his disciple in the garden? Right? Pray and stay awake. Right? So you see that and it reminds you. It recalls the word of Christ. It recalls the presence of the Holy Spirit. It brings to mind those eternal realities. You understand? Every time God gives us very specific directions, they are to remind us of Him. And every detail in the temple, and I assure you, every single detail is like that. I don't, have, I, I don't know if I'll be able to cover that next week. Let me tell you something about linen, because I don't have time to do it tonight. But, um, so, when it comes to the vestments of the priest... It's, it's supposed to be made out of linen. But not just out of linen. The vestment should be made according to the Bible of, uh, of linen, six times twisted. 
When twisted linen is prescribed, it should be eightfold twisted. The material of the high priest's cassock was twelve times twisted, that of the veil, twenty-four times twisted, and that of the breastplate and ephod, twenty-eight times twisted. Those are directions given by God. How many times it must be twisted? You see, if you truly love someone, what do you do? What do you want to do if you really love someone? Please them. What else? You want to know everything you can about them. Right? If you really are in love, you do everything you can to find everything you can about someone. Wouldn't you? It's there. He left all this for us. Faith is not about, you know, sitting in the church and closing my eyes and somehow I learned something. It's rolling up your sleeves, opening scripture, reading the fathers, reading the saints, and studying. You have a duty to study as Catholics. You're duty bound. You'll be called on that the day of your judgment. And study doesn't mean just coming here listening to me. <clears throat> You're not going to get away with it. It's a good start, but you have your own work cut out for you. You have to be studying. So you must pick some aspect that is speaking to you. Reading the life of the saint, or reading an encyclical, or something. And deepening your love of Christ by knowing Him better. Yeah, I wish I had time to go through all the details. Because truly, as David says, there is nothing more pleasing to the heart than sitting in the house of the Lord. But to sit in the house of the Lord, you must understand where you're at. Alright, let's start with the first one. Distribution of the twelve tribes on the tabernacle during the wandering in Sinai. Remember that Jacob had twelve boys. Not twelve children, twelve boys. He had girls. But the girls are not listed here. Just the boys. He had twelve boys. And he had them through four women. Leah was his first wife. Then Zil Zilpah, I'm sorry there's an L missing. Zilpah was her handmaid. Rachel was his second wife, and the one whom he loved. And then Bila was her handmaid. If you see the list that I gave you on the bottom, Reuben is the firstborn of Jacob, from Leah. Simeon was the second one from Leah as well. Levi, from which the Levite tribe comes, Moses was a Levite, is the third from Leah. Judah is the fourth from Leah as well. Dan is from Bila. And Naphtali is from Bila, who are Rachel's handmaid. In scripture we know that when God saw that, that Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah, he closed the womb of Rachel and opened the womb of Leah. That's why you see the series of Leah. And Rachel was barren. So then in desperation, she takes her handmaid and gives her to Jacob and he has children for Rachel through her handmaid. It was a um, common uh, accepted custom in all of the East when you would actually have children through your handmaid. Then Gad is from Zilpha because uh, Leah saw what was going on so she gave her, uh, Jacob her handmaid. And then Asher as well. Issachar is from Leah. Zebulon is from Leah, and finally Joseph, 
who ends up being the first, really the firstborn in a spiritual sense, is from Rachel. Right? Essentially, Rachel was the woman he wanted to marry all along. That's why Joseph counts as his really, his really firstborn son. And then Joseph had two children, Manasseh and Ephraim. And then finally, Benjamin is from Rachel. Those are the children, that, those are the boys that Jacob had. Now look at the way that God instructed, God instructed Moses to have the tribes structured around the tabernacle. By the way, you notice that I have east, west, south, and north. Right? Because, theologically, if you are oriented, orient, where's the orient? You're easted. Right? You're not north. This business of having north, being the way that we look at, is actually secular. It isn't theological. Alright? Not only that, but to the Jews, to the Hebrews, the abode of Satan is the north. That's why they always sacrificed towards the north. Well, the compass happens to point north, but uh, that's the compass problem. The sun rises from the east, and that's what we should be oriented towards. It's actually very interesting because the compass is oriented towards something that is earthly. And as the world is therefore oriented towards an earthly end. Whereas theologically we are oriented towards something that is inaccessible, which is the sun. And yet it's the sun that sheds light, not the north. The north is most, most often than not uh, in darkness. Another one of those concepts that kind of entered our consciousness and we take it for uh, granted. But it interferes with a proper understanding, a proper order of nature, theologically. Because at the end of the day, theology trumps all other sciences. Because it's the science of the divine. So in the East, you see that according to God's design, Judah, who is not the firstborn of Leah, but Judah represents Christ, is the tribe that is sitting at the East, right behind the Holy of Holies. No coincidence there. Okay? Yes. No. The, the tabernacle is the temple in the, during the wandering time. And inside it, you have the Holy of Holies. Alright? And Judah is right behind it. So the entrance to the tabernacle is from the west. Alright? One tribe you won't see here is that, is that of Levi, because the Levitical tribe was all around the encampment. All right. Moses, Aaron, and his family was right at the, were to live right before the entrance, and all the Levites around the encampment. Okay? Yes. Yes. Jesus is from Judah. Then, you notice what happened. You have Judah, then you have Issachar and Zebulon, who are the two last boys of Leah, and they sit right behind Judah. Okay? He took a junior, uh, he took a senior and two junior. Okay, put them together. Now, moving south, you see Reuben, again, Simeon, and Gad. Now, Reuben is from Leah, Simeon is from Leah, the two seniors, and Gad is from um, Zilpah, who is Leah's handmaid, therefore he's also part of Leah. So you notice, east to south, it's all Leah. 
Okay? Then you go west, you have at the door Ephraim. Now, what is Ephraim representing of, representative of? Israel. Israel is most often called Ephraim. Why? Because, who's Ephraim by the way? Ephraim is not a son of Jacob, is he? Ephraim is the son of Joseph. Is he the oldest son or is the youngest son? Younger. And yet he is here in position of honor. Why? Because when Jacob, when, when Joseph, when, when Jacob was about to bless Joseph, Joseph recognized that he is essentially the firstborn. What does the firstborn get? The double portion. So he brought his two sons. And said, Dad, don't bless me. Bless my two sons. Make them yours. Jacob said, yes, I will. So Jacob was old and couldn't really see very well. And so he had, sitting in front of him, he had Manasseh here on, in front of his right hand and Ephraim on his, in front of his left hand. And instead of putting his hands straight on top of the two boys, he actually crossed them. He went like this. So Joseph said, ah, poor dad, he can't really see clearly. So he, he uncrossed his hands and said, dad, no, 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 no. This is my oldest. This is Manasseh. And this is Ephraim. And Jacob patiently said, I know my son, but that's not what God chose. The younger will prime the older. And he crossed, crossed, you're you're with me? Crossed his hands. And guess what they do the Day of Atonement when they're going to lay the sins of the people on the victim? They cross their hands. So he crossed his hands and Ephraim ended up being the firstborn. And that's why Israel, most often than not, is called Ephraim. One of the most powerful oracle of Isaiah against Israel is, Woe to the drunkards of Ephraim. He means Israel. Okay? So here you have Rachel, Rachel, Rachel. Ephraim, Manasseh, and then Benjamin, who is the youngest among the children of Rachel. And then, going north, you have Dan, then Asher, and Naphtali. It's very interesting. I haven't been able to find uh, an answer to this one, but notice what he does. Notice what the Lord does. Up to this point, he kept them kind of blood-related, right? The kids of Leah are together, the kids of Rachel are together. That kind of blood related. But notice what he does in the north. He's got Dan. Dan is from uh, Bila, is Rachel. Naphtali is also Bila, who is Rachel. And in the middle of them, you have Asher, who is from uh, Zilpah, from Leah. I don't know why he, he divided the two. Now, move quickly to the third page. I'm going to point something out to you right away. If you look at the names on the third page, this is, these are the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem, which are again named by the tribes of Israel. And one thing you will see is that you have Reuben, Judah, Simeon, Levi, Isaac, or Zebulon, Joseph, Benjamin, Manasseh, Naphtali, Asher, and Gad. Who's missing? Dan is missing. Dan is not there. Now, we will see when we get to the book of Revelation that these gates are named against the tribes 
of Israel, and in the foundation of every one of those gates is named by name of an apostle, and there is a precious stone associated with each of the gates. Now, which apostle you think would be missing? Judas. Dan, Judas. Dan, Judas. The rabbis taught that the Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan. Dan had a very dubious reputation. And so he's completely gone from the book of Revelation. Um, look what happens on the second. Let me go back to the second here quickly. This is the vision of the new temple that is seen by Ezekiel. On the east, look what happens on the east now. You don't have the children of Leah, you have the children of Rachel. They're the ones on the yes. You have Joseph, Benjamin, and then Dan, and the vision of Ezekiel. But they're all Rachel related. Then on the south, you have Simeon, Issachar, and Zebulon. On the west, you have Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. And you notice that, again, LLL, and then you have the same. You know, you have two Z's and a B, and why is the B sitting there? Again, I don't know. There's a reason for it, that it's kind of separating the others. And on the north, you have Levi, Judah, and Reuben. Okay? And commentators spend quite a bit of time talking about that order. Again, I don't have time to go through, through it. I just want to point out to you the attention to the, to the kind of details that, that God has given us in the way he structured things. And finally, in, um, in, uh, in the Apocalypse, if you look on the east, you have Judah back in the foremost position, Reuben and Simeon flanked on each side. They're both seniors they're all senior Leah, the, the, the older kids of Leah. Levi has been downgraded, if you notice, he's on the south, indicating that the Levitical priesthood now has no longer hold the importance it had before. You have Issachar and Zebulon, they're all Leah, one senior and two junior. On the west, you have Benjamin flanked by Joseph, representing who? Representing Ephraim, and Manasseh, the other son of Joseph. You notice? Joseph, therefore, being the firstborn, and Ephraim being, in essence, the firstborn, they're collapsed into Joseph. You have Benjamin and Manasseh. Again, Rachel. So Judah on the east and Rachel on the west. Judah because, the tribe of, because uh, Christ comes from the tribe of Judah. And on the west, uh, Benjamin, Ra Joseph, and Manasseh because they are really the rightful children. This is how important marriage is to God, that even the structure of the temple bears the stamp of marriage. And then finally, on the north, you have Naphtali, Asher, and Gad, and Dan is no longer there. We'll be spending more time looking at this order when we hit the book of Revelation. just want to point, point it out to you, so you can at least get a keener understanding of the level of details you have in scripture and they're not there for us to push it away. They're there so that we can actually study it. Now, in whatever time I'm, I have left, what I want to do is talk to you a little bit more about 
a couple of things. The first one is bread. Bread was offered as one of the sacrifices in the temple. In fact, it's, um, it's one of the most important offerings that they could bring because only bread and wine were allowed, generally speaking, inside the holy. No animal sacrifice would make it inside the holy other than on the Day of Atonement. But bread and wine regularly, because inside you had the table of showbread, consisting of 12 loaves of unleavened bread and 12 flasks containing uh, um, wine mixed with water. So when we bring our offering to the, to, the, to the altar during the liturgy, we did not invent that. That comes straight out from the temple. It's the offering on the showbread which Christ took and sublimated into himself, turned into him. And he only took this one, he didn't take animal parts. The unleavened bread was never cut with a knife, always broken with a hand. Even if you were to go to their homes, if they were to give you unleavened bread, they would never use a knife. They will always break it with the hand. Okay? Indicating that um, that bread was completely wholesome. There is nothing alien to our nature in it. It is of us. Completely of us. The proposition or showbread of the temple, that flat bread, was baked on an oven called the tanur. And those of you of the Middle East may know what I'm talking about. It's a semicircular oven that is heated with coils, and when it's completely hot, they take the bread and they stick it on the surface, and it cooks very quickly, very rapidly, and they take it out. Okay? And uh, some, some, some of us who are from those countries have tasted that bread, which are still used today, which tells you that the, the, the liturgy is supposed to spill into the world, into habitual things we do in the family into language we speak. Um, one thing you will notice, if you speak Arabic, or if you speak, um, uh, if you hear prayers said in Lebanese, you will notice that, this, that the language used for the prayer is the language of everyday life. There's no separation. Which therefore makes it a lot more uh, closer to the heart. Because it's the same word used every day. And it used to be like this in all cultures, but when the culture divorces itself from the sacred, the sacred then becomes only used within the confines of the church. And that's why it was important to reform the old Latin Mass, because it had that impact. Mass became something you would only live in the church, completely divorced from everyday life, because no one spoke Latin. Okay? Whereas during the time of the, of the temple, the language spoken in the temple was the language spoken at home. The hymns sang at the temple could be sung at home. It was part of life. It has to be part of life. It has to be something you can hum going to work. How many of you hums will hum a hymn that they've learned at church going to work? You're you going to have at least have 30 or 40 of those that you memorize. Because then... The liturgy is permeating your life. It's turning it into a continuation of the liturgy. That's what it's supposed to, to do. But if it's separate and different and foreign to your everyday life, how could it do that? The unleavened bread is called the staff of life by the Hebrews. 
And the ceremonial of the eve of the Sabbath involved 12 matzo, which means unleavened loaves, with 12 gold flasks of wine mixed with water. And unleavened bread made with flour and water is matzo in Hebrew and azimuth in Greek, both meaning unleavened. You know how many times they sifted the flour to get, to get it to the level of purity they wanted it, they needed it to be, so they could make that bread? 11 times. That's how often the, the, the flour was sifted, using progressively finer and finer sifts. So what does that tell you? Why do they do it so often? Because it shows you that Christ was sinless. The flour had to be absolutely pure. Absolutely pure. The flour was mixed with water, but not any water. It had to be sort of a purified water, the same reason. Okay? So you take those two and you get a dough. Now, the dough is of a certain nature, right? When it's cooked on the oven, it becomes of a different nature. Representing what? Typifying what? Typifying Christ, who had a human, human and divine nature, who was like us and everything but sin, but through his death on the cross, that's the oven, rose from the dead and became the bread of life. Okay? That's the meaning of that bread. That was the school at which they were schooled to learn, to recognize the Messiah, to understand what he's talking about. Oil. The temple's sacred oil was composed of myrrh, cinnamon, cassia, and olive oil. With it, priest, king, and all temple furniture was anointed. In Greek, the mixture is called chrism, from the word creo, to anoint. This holy mixture was so sacred that they were forbidden to use it except as laid down in the law, and the one who would give it to the stranger would be killed. That's in Exodus chapter 30, verse 33. After imposing their hands on the head of the high priest to be consecrated, they poured the holy chrism on his head. So when they consecrated the high priest, they poured the holy chrism on his head. Likewise, in case of a new priest, a young man of 30 years of age, no man under 30 could be a priest. He had to be 30. Again, typifying Christ. There's no other explanation why he would be 30. And that's, by the way, why Christ had to wait till he was 30 to become a rabbi. Because you would not be able to be a rabbi under the age of 30. Or a priest. And they would... So, in case of a new priest, the young man of 30 years of age, bathed and anointed with oil, stood before the holy with two cakes of unfermented bread, matzo, in his hands. The high priest sprinkled him with water, type of baptism, okay, in their case to purify him, but it was a type of baptism. That's what they would do. They would sprinkle him with water, and then he prostrated himself on the ground before the shaking of his fathers, his face to the earth. Three times he made the prostration. This was the reason Christ prostrated himself in the garden three times. He was being consecrated priest, having been anointed a little bit earlier by uh, Mary Magdalene, who broke that very uh, expensive flask of oil on him. But that's why he prostrated himself three times. And that's why the priest prostrates himself three times. That's where the prostration comes from. Again, goes all the way back to the temple. The young priest rises to his knees and the temple priests impose their hands on him, their arms crossed like Jacob blessing Joseph's son. Again, how does he become a priest? By the imposition of the hands. Alright? That's where we get the imposition of the hands. 
It comes, it goes all the way back to the temple. Everything we do in the church sources back to the temple. We have not invented that stuff. Now, he had brought with him two goats, and he put his sins on the two goats. The priests sacrificed them and splashed their blood on the horns of the altar. We'll talk more about that next week. Then they take the flesh to be burned outside the walls of the city, and then put the blood of the victims on the young priest's right ear, thumb, and great toe. Ear, the thumb, and the toe. The toe symbolizing his ability to walk, the thumb symbolizing his ability to do, and the ear, because from the ear sin has entered, and from the ear salvation will enter. Why do we say from the ear sin has entered? Because Eve heard the serpent. Eve listened to the serpent. And Mary will listen and hear the angel. Okay? So that's an anointing with blood, typifying that every priest, when every man who becomes a priest is anointed, not only with oil, but with the sacred blood of the Lord. Alright? Which the goat typify. They mix the blood, and they mix the blood of the two goats, because they, they mix the blood of the two goats, typifying the two natures of Christ. And then with it, they sprinkle him and his vestments. They sprinkle him with the blood. They anoint him on the head with the holy chrism, and then place in his hands the flesh of the sacrifice dripping with blood and cakes of unfermented bread. You see, we have a very sanitized representation of the temple, which hopefully next week will be completely destroyed. Somehow we see this temple as just, you know, the church. No, it wasn't like that. But why do, we, do they place in, their hand, in his hands pieces of the ghost that they just slew, dripping with blood? Why do you think they do that? What is the goat representing? It was only him. It died on, its be, on his behalf. So it's a very vivid reminder of what it took to have his sin transferred. Alright? Unfortunately, we have become so sanitized and so desensitized that when we see the sacrifice on the altar, we're tempted to yawn. But the priest ought to remember, every man who becomes a priest ought to remember that when he holds in his hand the body of our Lord, he needs to remind himself of the passion. And that is why it is important for Catholics to constantly meditate on the passion of the Lord. That is why we have to have crucifix in our homes. We can't just have abstract images. We have to have a crucifix to look at it and remind ourselves of what the Lord had to suffer for our salvation. And then to the young Levite, they gave the symbols of his ministry, the sacrificial vessels and the keys to the temple gates. So every one of them had the keys to the gates. Can I remind you of somebody who had the keys to the gates? Okay. This is why the keys chalice are handed to the candidate for minor orders. It used to be the case, at least, that they would handle the keys and the chalice to candidates for minor orders. I don't know if they still do it today. Now, mir in Hebrew, mor, which means really bitter, uh, Smyrna in Greek, is used for embalming. It was also given to Christ on the cross to anoint him in the form of wine mixed with myrrh. Let's talk briefly about incense. And the Lord said to Moses, Take unto thee spices 
stacked and anka, galbanum, of sweet savor, and the clearest of frankincense, all shall be of equal weight, and thou shalt make incense. That's in Exodus chapter 30, 34. Again, notice the very specific command, what God wants. And again, each one of those herbs and, 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 and perfumes has its role to play to represent Christ. I don't have time to go through all of it. Uh, I will only um, focus on the use of the incense because it's very important to us. Now the smoke of incense ascending before the Lord in the temple at Passover and in the church typified the prayers of Christ. So when the incense is rising in the church, it's, it's reminding us, it's representing the prayer of Christ in the garden rising to God. That's the purpose of incense. It's the sweet, what is Christ? Christ is the sweet perfume of God, St. Paul tells us. Why? Because of the incense. It is the sweet perfume sending to heaven as an acceptable prayer. It is that of Christ and of his saints. And then we associate ourselves with it. Now why does the priest incense us? Why does he do that? And we bow. Why are we doing this for? Most of us do it because everybody else is doing it. But why are we supposed to do it? We feel mystical. Something is happening. But we don't really know what. What is the incense? When When he sends the incense on us, what does that mean? It's the prayer of Christ enveloping us. We're in his prayer. It's the word of God entering us. We smell the incense to typify that the prayer of Christ in our heart. And then we bow because it is the prayer of Jesus Christ who died for us on the cross. That's why. Do you see how much we're missing? Do you see how much we are poor? It's, it's all ours. It's our heritage. It's all ours. But we somehow go through this, what I call the car wash Catholic routine. We go to Mass, we bow, we genuflect, we stand, we do this, we do that, and we maybe understand 10% what's going on. And we think it's just a mystery. You know, put your brain on autopilot, don't even think about it, and float through it. And, I, and then we wonder, why is God hearing my prayer? What, 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 what prayer? You might just as well, as well ask yourself the question, why is God not hearing the, the, the prayer of the car, the car wash? If you're just going through autopilot mode, and you're not aware of what's going on, and what you're supposed to do, how can God hear your prayer? When the Lamb was being slain, the priest chosen to offer incense in the holies, who could officiate only once in his life. So a priest could enter the holies to offer incense only once in his life. Once. That's it. He could do it twice. This is how holy it was to them. You're not worthy to do it twice. Only once. That's what happened to Zachary. He entered the uh, and did it once. That's when Gabriel appeared to him. By the altar of incense. Where does he take the coal from? He takes it from the altar of sacrifice. Meaning, what lights up our incense? You know what is coal? We light up the coal, right? Where's, what's lighting up those coals? Where are they coming from? The fire on the coal is coming from where? It's coming from the cross. It is lit by the death, passion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the fire of the Holy Spirit who lights up that coal to allow that incense 
to ascend to heaven. Even lighting the coal is a sacred duty. So he takes that incense, he takes that coal from the altar of sacrifice and then he spreads it on the altar of incense. And then with a censer, he, he incensed the, towards the holy three times, representing his prayer ascending, but really the prayer of Christ before the throne of God the Father. And then to the left, and then to the right. And you can see that the old covenant liturgy was not able to sanctify the people because they were not incensed. Only the holy of holies, not the people. It could not bring forth grace. And then he would say this prayer, Let my prayer be directed as incense in thy sight, the lifting up of my hands as evening sacrifice. Set watch, O Lord, before my mouth, and a door around my lips. Incline not my heart to evil words to make excuses for sins. So first, it's a prayer of intercession, and then what is it? It's a penitential act. He's confessing his, his, that he's a, he's, a, he's a sinner. By the way, the two first verses, for those of you who maybe are familiar with the evening prayer and the Maronite book of prayers, those two verses are echoed very, very closely in the prayer of the evening. And again, because it goes back to the, it goes back to the temple. And finally, the offerings. There are five offerings, and we just list them. I'm not going to spend time on them tonight. I'll spend more time on them next time. There's the bird offering. That's when you offer uh, a bull, and it's completely offered. You eat nothing of it. And the bull must be without blemish. It must be perfect. That's the first offering, the burnt offering. Then you have the meal offering, which is an expression of the Israelites' thanksgiving and recognition of God's sovereignty over them. The peace offering spoke of the Israelites experiencing peace with God. The sin offering was brought by the Israelites as a substitute to make atonement for their sins, meaning for their sinful nature, sinful fallen nature, not for any specific sin. Right? And then the trespass offering was offered for a specific sin they may have committed towards God or towards neighbor. So the burnt offering, the meal offering, the peace offering, the trespass offering, um, now the sin offering and the trespass offering, the five types of sacrifices that were made. And again, God commanded all those. He, God set those down. Right, by the way, in our liturgy, the 40, uh, when, when someone dies, right, on the 40th day, what do we do? We bring bread. Right? We bring bread, we'll put it by the altar, right? And then, the, 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 during the Mass, the bread is blessed, and we take it out and we eat from it. Why do we do that? What is that? It's a peace offering. It's exactly the peace offering. I'll show you that next time. That's what it comes from. It's not, again, it's not a human invention. We do it because we feel good. Alright? There were five animals that could be used in the sacrifice. The first was the ox, and it typified Christ, who endured the passion. The second was the lamb, symbolizing Christ's meekness, purity, and silent, voluntary surrender to death on the cross. The third is the goat, typified Christ, who was numbered among the transgressors. And then the fourth and the fifth are the turtle dove and pigeon, who were symbols of mourning, innocence, and purity, and poverty, and also they typify the two natures of Christ. 
every animal chosen, every animal that was picked, was picked to represent some aspect of the passion of our Lord. Okay, so what I've done tonight is very briefly, very, very briefly, touched upon certain elements of the Holy Temple as well as the Tabernacle. I'll, I'll conclude with this one reflection. The Tabernacle, as I told you, was the most, the holiest piece that they had. They were not allowed to touch it. Any man who put his hand on the Tabernacle would die instantly. And it happened once and that man died right away. God smote him. The Tabernacle was made of acacia wood, which is a very hard very, very hard, very resisting wood, and it was covered with gold in and out. And in it, you had the, the, the manna, the Ten Commandments, and the rod of Aaron that had budded. St. Jerome and other saints have seen in it a type of Our Lady. The, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant was in the tabernacle, and the Holy Spirit filled it. It actually it came and it overshadowed the, the, the ark so much so that Moses could not stay there, meaning no sinful man could be in the presence of the all-pure Virgin Mary. And she was completely and wholly reserved to God. Because in the, tabern in the ark you had three things that typified Christ. The manna, representing the Eucharist. The commandments, representing the word of God. And the, Aaron, the, the rod of Aaron, representing the priesthood. Those are types of Christ, so that the ark itself is a type of Our Lady. It was made of indestructible wood, wood very, very strong to indicate her nature, which was without sin, and then laid with gold in and out to indicate the superabundance of grace with which she was covered. And finally, she had the two cherubim with their heads between their wings, because they, they themselves, cannot bear to see the glorious virgin with her son. And on that seat of mercy, you had the Holy Spirit to indicate the perfect union, the complete union of Mary with the Holy Spirit. And that was the most precious thing there was. And the tabernacle behind me is a type of Our Lady in the same way. It is the ark. In many cases, the tabernacle is represented as the ark. Okay? Everything in the church comes to us from the temple. Don't let anyone fool you in thinking we Catholics invented stuff in the Middle Ages. It comes from the temple. We are still following the direction God gave us. We have to continue doing so and improve on it. We have to rebuild the churches that He wanted built, not that we want to build. So that we can give Him glory and worship Him in truth and in spirit. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.